You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Welcome to the Essential Apple Podcast, a show where we cover the last seven to ten days in the world of Apple news, reviews, rumours, roundup, gossip, tech, and, well, basically, anything else that catches our eye. This is the Essential Apple Podcast. I think that was the intro, because it sounds like Simon's just pocket-dialed me, but hello, I'm back. Ah, oh, I needed a break. Well, it was supposed to be a break, but unfortunately it's my birthday. I say unfortunately, yeah, because I'm getting old. Uh, but I was ill, so any and all things I had organised for the weekend all got cancelled, and now I was just on the sofa, feeling very sorry for myself. But hey-ho, this week the sun is shining, been out for a cycle, and things seem a little bit better, so it's time to record a podcast. And this week... We've got a guest. We have Mark Seeley, the CEO of web development company Markworks. I always struggle to say my own name, let alone say Mark in general. It's one of those words. <laughs> if you listen to the pre-show uh, talk we were having, you know we were discussing languages. Um, Mark's been involved with computers pretty much from the start. He's written for companies such as the Financial Times, the Guardian, the Daily Telegraph, and has been a contributor to MyMac, MacNN, and Deep Secrets, and involved with Risk Users, Archimedes. Uh, world acorn computer and acorn user and mark format so basically he's way too qualified to be on this show but he's agreed to come on anyway how are you doing today mark i'm doing very well thank you my qualifications have just dropped so i'm right there <laughs> oh that's it it's like oh no i haven't got the qualifications i can slip I it now no no i only have to charge half of my royalties that i would have to charge <laughs> Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to talk to you both. Oh, excellent. Well, we always like to have guests on. It breaks the monotony of Simon and myself uh, talking week in, week out. And also, we've got Simon with us this week. How are you doing this week, Simon? Uh, I'm all right, Mark. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you once again for coming in and covering me whilst I've been off. Uh, you might have to do it a bit more often because the calendar's starting to get a bit busy with events. Ugh. Oh, well, cycling's, never mind. cycling's actually quite hard work, I realised today. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> anyway, this isn't about me, this is about the other Mark. Um, so Mark, you're the CEO of a web dev company. What is that like on a day-to-day basis of dealing with people who say, I want a website? How many times do you hear that when people say you do web dev? I that that uh, company Markworks is is pretty much um it, it slowed down a lot in the last little while we were very active during the dot com boom and we did do some work we tended for some reason or another to specialize in sites for local doctors practices physiotherapy we had a a world renowned heart surgeon who wanted a website and for people selling furniture and as far as i can tell over all the years i did it i couldn't find any kind of connection but i'm sure there must be one somewhere my main job during the last 20 years that i since i've been in los angeles has been working for a large non-profit arts organization during the day and markworks was very much a, an on the side thing but it's all the web and it was all very has been very exciting since the like the late 90s when things really took off but to answer your question perhaps more directly people for the most part, never know what they want. You say that you can do anything from a three-page, what we call a calling card site, where it's just a presence with a contact form, through to, we wanted a chemist, a, what they call a pharmacy here, approached us about 
five, six years ago and said, can you do a full online store? And we said, yes, we can, because it would have meant a lot of work and we would have probably charged a great deal of money because it always takes longer than you think it does. And it's always more complicated and it's always more frustrating. And you try to guide them through helping them understand the difference between what they think they want and what they really want. And then you give them comps, you give them trial versions, and they tell you what they like about it and what they don't like. And then you go ahead and build it. But it can be very frustrating. It can be very rewarding when they're pleased. Uh, it can be very odd when you correct their their language. We had a client once who worked for a, a financial advisor, and he mostly dealt with teachers. My wife was a teacher. I was a teacher. And he wanted to ensure that people had a hardy retirement, H-A-R-D-Y. And we said, I don't think that's what you mean. So we changed it to hearty. And we asked him to review the text. And sure enough, he corrected it back to Hardy Retirement. And we did that twice. And when Hardy came back the third time, we left it. No choice. Just The customer is always correct. The customer is always correct. Even when they're an idiot. Uh, I, I, I share the same sentiment. I don't do any design work, but I sort of help people out and getting websites set up and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and in work at the moment, it's it's so annoying because people only know what they can have. They don't know what's actually possible. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's right. I, I remember um, seeing one particular comment on a desk in work of saying, can we make it so it works with Google Analytics? And it's like, <laughs> oh, and, you, and there was another thing of, I think we should have tags. And it's like, oh, hello to welcome to 2009. It's, mm. it was, it's very much like they've sort of, they've read a book that they've got from the li- uh, library. Yes. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, and kind of in their defense, things are changing so rapidly. When I started the job that I've just retired from, working on a web team of, it varied, but between 16 and 22 people, extremely talented, dedicated uh very competent people. We the, the the initial team had no more than I think six of us, and it was 1998, 1999, something like that. Not long after I after I'd moved to the US, and the the tools we were using were almost unrecognizable compared with what we have now. And things change so quickly that you they can be forgiven for not keeping up, since we, in a way, can be forgiven for not keeping up. Even if you think of the history of Apple over the last 25 years, it's changed out of all recognition, as oh, I'm yeah, sure. Very much. I mean, when when the web first became, uh, shall we say, uh, out of the out of the geekosphere and something that ordinary people started to think about, I did a few websites, and, and in those days, it was pretty much all hand coded in HTML. I had a very simple program that allowed you to uh, automate some of it, so you didn't actually have to write the whole thing in HTML longhand. That really was uh, about the pinnacle <laughs> mm. of web development tech at the time and yes. uh, then very rapidly the the obviously the web started to evolve very very rapidly and things like dreamweaver were launched and uh, people said to me are you going to carry on doing you know web stuff and i was very much like look i have enough trouble keeping up with the technology in print i'm not going to I, I would have had to say, okay, I'm going to move into web development full time or yes, I just, I just can't keep, I can't do both. So I, I'll stick with what I know, I think, and I'll leave it. I'll leave the web development stuff to younger lads who can. Uh... <laughs> yes. Because so I... pretty rapidly they started adding things like JavaScript and frames and, oh, you know, and CSS. And oh, everybody too. loves an iframe. Oh yes. <laughs> everybody loves that. <sighs> 
Simon and Mark, I don't know whether you remember the very first mail client on Apple before Claris Mail, which was which was actually the the parent of our current mail app. It was something where, with you saying just now, Simon, about hand coding, it was essentially a very crude version of text edit where you would construct your mail message and then you had to build the headers. There was a bit of templating to help you, but you had to build the headers, the envelope for the for the uh, for the for the complete mail message in one program. Combine the two and drop them into something. I want to say it was called Mailman, but I may be misremembering. I know the icon was red, and you dropped it in. You then presumably in those days picked up your acoustic modem running at seventy five twelve hundred dialed waited for the beeps and whistles and then pressed something else and hope that this cobbled together heath robinson what they say rube goldberg in the united states <laughs> had actually done something and maybe three days later you got a reply that was at the time when the first browser was cello if you remember that um, and bit the pr- premier search engine was alta vista well i was going to say uh the first mail client that i remember using was not strictly speaking a mail client as we know exactly. it now there was I, I think i had one called get mail and then something uh, a separate smtp yeah tool. so you you had to you had to compose and send in yes. one application and then receive in another yes and i think the first browser i used was mosaic yes and yes, Alta Vista was the king of search in those days, very much so. And if you compare the speed at which technology and the kind of technology we work in has increased in the past 20 years with almost any other period in history, this is a, a phenomenal increase, an, an inc- uh, a, a logarithmic increase, it's a, a geometric progression or whatever it's called, yep. out of all proportion with what you would expect to happen in any period of 20 years. Uh, I process. I believe somebody said if uh, if the car industry had mm. progressed as fast as the internet, then Henry Ford's uh, you know Model T would have been replaced by a Lamborghini. Yeah, yeah, it, it is absolutely unbelievable. And I, I was I watched a thing that Elon Musk wanted everybody to watch and it's still free i think until tonight yes I saw um, yeah what is the elon musk thing oh it's it's a it's a documentary it's about an hour and 20 minutes long um it's very good it's it's very uh balanced i think it's about the growth of ai and automation and uh the just the whole way that that the internet is and and its spin-offs are developing um and it's a combination of uh, certain things that, you know perhaps we should be aware of we should be careful about and also about opportunities it's a very it's not um certainly not a scaremongering you know the robots are going to kill us all it, it's more about um if if we don't like all technologies it's neither good nor bad but if we don't make sure that it, it's not allowed to be used for bad we could find ourselves in a difficult situation so what so what's facebook's excuse ah uh-huh, well that's a whole different matter let's not go there yet <laughs> yeah well it, well it was it's been an interesting week uh of course the, the one time i take a bit of time off actually stuff happens and i don't know if we well we'll no we'll actually we'll stay with mark for a little bit so you've been with um in computing right from the very start so what was your very first computer what got you into sort of doing what you do in the late 
70s, early 80s, my father said to me, if we don't make an attempt to understand computers so that we control them, they will end up controlling us. Interesting segue from what you've just said about Facebook. His was a very bland, generic statement because obviously no computer can think for itself, despite what you've just referred to with AI. So get yourself, I think he may have even bought me, get yourself a Sinclair ZX81, learn how to program it. And then when they tell you when you next go to the post office, I'm sorry, it's a computer failure, you'll be able to say, no, it isn't. It's someone's failed to program. And the way that you programmed, you had 1K, if you remember, ZX81. Oh, yes. And, no, and there was no sprites that? either. There was, it was basically... There were no sprites. And you, I thought, well, I learned, I sort of made sense of BASIC. And it was at the time of the, if you remember, the BBC uh, Computer Literacy Project, which was designed to push the BBC micro. And I, there's a long and interesting story, set of stories about that, of course. Um, so I decided, if you remember, you peeked and poked bytes into the RAM, the 1K RAM, uh, and to, to write machine code. And I taught myself that in a, in a pretty basic way. And then I had to face the decision, do I buy a 16K RAM pack oh, yes. or, a, or a Spectrum, or do I go with BBC? And I, there was something about the, 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 the BBC which appealed to me in the way that the Apple world does. And I hope we'll get a chance to talk about music software because there's, there's, a, there's a music notation program called Dorico, which is making huge impact on the music world for very much the same reasons. With Apple, it was, it just works. With the BBC, it was, this is a progress, this, this is a computer system that will explain things to the non-specialist and, and free them up to be able to do things. And the, the example I always remember is that they, they took the letters of the keyboard in such a way that they corresponded to what you wanted to do. I can't remember whether there was a control, but if there was, to print was control P. To begin something was control B. And if you remember on the old DOS machines, the CPM machines, even before them, I ran a CPM network when I was teaching in London. And the, the way to start a print job was something like control Z. And the way to stop it was control Z. So being a toggle, you had students constantly, nothing happens. So they press it before you don't know which state of the toggle you're in. So the BBC micro had a huge degree of transparency. And I really responded to that was also tied in with teletext, if you remember. It had a dedicated mode, mode seven, I think. And its modes, its screen modes, began at zero. And I thought that was wonderful <laughs> because it actually taught people about binary logic and binary arithmetic. So I didn't buy a RAM pack for a ZX81 and I didn't buy a Spectrum. I jumped straight to BBC and stayed with BBC right up until almost the time that I left the UK to come here to marry my American wife. I didn't have a job. I came for love and we're still together. I did get a job, but I, I knew I would be on a hiding to nothing trying to use acorns in the United States. So I switched to Apple and I found the same thing. I found you didn't have to install drivers to get printers to work. They were probably just installed. I'm thinking now about what we used to call system six and system seven. They were just installed by the very act of wanting to print. It was almost at times magic. When I got my first modem, I attached it. I thought, well, now what do I do? And it said, do you wish to, whatever it was, install a modem and configure it? And sure enough, I did. And it did. And it worked perfectly first time. They were great days. And I, to some extent, I feel that Apple has lost that in some ways because it's trying to do, it's trying to cover all the platforms. It's trying to make stuff work across 
the iCloud phones, Apple TV desktops, and that's a huge job. And it does have going for it what what the Windows world doesn't, which it's got it's the boss of its own hardware platform. But it still has that spirit of transparency and making things easy. So I guess that's another long answer to a short question. But I did begin on a ZX81 transition through the BBC. Loved the way that the BBC Micro worked and Acorn, and then the Archimedes. And at that point, I became very involved. I became a journalist uh, on those two magazines, B-Bug and uh, what was the other one called? Uh, Archimedes World, I think. And worked on chiefly education. I was still teaching, but I took various qualifications in education and education and computing. And although my interest is, still is education, I sort of transitioned into full-time technology and taught myself to program for real, taught myself to... Um, understand the issues for programming some of the commercial issues that allowed me to run Markworks for however many years it's been and then to become a hardline techie and do the kind of work I've done for my Mac with reviewing and those other organizations and I'm still very enthused by it it does go fast it, it is something that's changing all the time but I still love it as I think both of you t- you do I think when we were in school we had the uh, the BBCs and then we got the Archimedes and mm-hmm. I love that and in some ways now, it reminds me of Apple because yeah. I, I've got very limited sort of vague memories of this Archimedes. It was like a, it was a, like a nice, sleek machine, almost. It looked better than the Atari ST and Amiga, I reckon. Oh, yes, much better. And just the UI and it was the way that everything flowed and it was yes. it just looked really nice. It's just a shame that... I can't. Actually, I, I do watch a lot of retro sort of programs about hardware, but from what I can gather, yeah, that Acorn Archimedes was a darn fine machine. But uh, yes, they sort was. of priced they priced themselves where the market, like they did with the BBC Micro, because wasn't the BBC like horrifically uh, expensive for schools? Uh, the BB the initial BBCs weren't the initial BBCs, if I remember correctly, had something crazy like two hundred and forty nine pounds or four hundred and forty nine. I may be misremembering. They were relatively simple machines, sixteen sixteen k, thirty two k. Um, but the Acorn was very expensive in the same way that people say Apple is when they when they don't take into account the maintenance costs. Um, it was just that it was so. It was written with the. If you remember, in six, the operating system was written in six five zero two assembler, which was Motorola, and nobody used them at those time at that time. And the IBM uh, PC Windows world, well before Windows, the DOS world, just had the marketing power to push out a very good system. And I think if if Acorn had had the power behind it and the marketing and the momentum to say this is a superior machine to Windows, which it it, it is, and well, it was, they might have succeeded. But for one reason or another, they didn't. At the time, if you remember, when Acorn was sort of trying to reinvent itself, and I'm I'm struggling to remember when, as you as you do, but probably early nineties, late eighties, early nineties, they defi- they define defined the designed the set top box. And if you remember, their uh, principle of Acorn was they were the first people to invent the RISC machine, reduced instruction set chip. All these assembler and uh, machine code routines, which aren't necessary, are slowing the chip down. Let's get rid of them. They got rid of them. And they developed the set-top box, which Larry Ellison was going to use 
for the very early DV, what do we call them, T TiVos and reception, wireless reception on TVs, a, a commercial product. There would have been a huge breakthrough into the household market, but I think they, their heart was with computers. There are still Archimedes around, a company called Castle Technology. Um, not sure it's not far from where you are, Simon, in the East Anglia. I may be wrong. They were always Acorn stalwarts. They took over and they still will sell. There is still a risk OS. And I think it's probably a wonderful, a wonderful operating system. I, I always wanted to have an Acorn because one of the things about the Acorn was that the OS effectively lived in ROM, didn't it? Yes. The whole thing basically booted from ROM. Yes. And we did, if you remember, we did wonderfully nerdy things, burning EPROMs. You get, you, there used to be a company called Watford Electronics. Oh, yes. Remember them? You remember? Yep. And they would supply you with a, a, there was sideways RAM in both the BBC and Archimedes, although less so with Archimedes, where you would have an application, not just the OS, living in, well, we called it ROM, but it was really, it was an EEPROM, an electrically erasable PROM. And you would uh, burn it uh, for 20 minutes, however long it took, in the same way that we now do a firmware update to a camera or, or, a, or a computer, for that matter. And then you would put it under an ultraviolet light for 20 minutes and erase it all. And there were little tools. I remember there was one called ZIF, Zero Insertion Force, that you would use to push the, the, e the EEPROM or the ROM in. And then you would run word processors from ROM sideways so that you would use that, that whatever it was, how many bytes of memory. You would switch between which one application or another. Yeah. Ah, those were the days. Those well, were the days. There were different times. I, mean, I just had a look here on eBay and like Acorn Archimedes, they're going for about £100 uh, and they're selling for more than the Atari STs and all that sort of stuff. So what is that? The one I'm looking at here is an Acorn Archimedes 7000. And what's the spec on that? Uh, this machine appears to have four meg of onboard memory, uh, and with the monitor, it weighs over eighteen kilos. <laughs> yeah, that'd be the monitor. I remember the days when a you know a, a twenty inch uh, CRT monitor, you know, realistically needed two people to lift it safely. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely, and a heavy table to to stand it on. Oh yes, yeah. Don't go putting it on a on a card table. Well, <laughs> as we're talking about risk, what is, what's your thoughts then, Mark, on this uh, alleged story that Apple are going to be shifting over to their own chips? Do you think there's any sort of circumstance to that, or is this just the standard, oh, Apple are good at making chips, they're bound to make their own CPU at some time? Well, they do make their own CPU, but for the desktop. I, I saw that with great interest, because you'll remember how, in I suppose, before Intel became the chip, for Apple, there was a huge resistance to anything that Intel did by the Apple, the Apple fans and by Steve Jobs and his predecessors for the period when he was neither in nor out. I think it could be very interesting, don't you? I think it could be interesting to see how they they will certainly be able to tailor make what they what their chips do for their own hardware. And there, there will be, a, I would have thought, a much faster level of communication with all the instructions and all the routines that aren't necessary. I expect it will be hugely expensive. I remember once seeing a survey of IT pay and the most highly paid people in the industry are chip designers. It will be interesting that's, to watch and see what they say, won't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, um... because chip design, that's because chip designers are very rare. Yeah. There are yeah. not that many people who can do it. My, my thought about that, I mean, 
this surfaces over and over again, this thing about, are Apple going to change away? I mean, we went from the Motorola series to the IBM Power series, or it was um, it was the AIM, wasn't it? Uh, Apple, it, Apple, IBM, and Motorola, the Power series. And then from the Power series onto uh, Intel, now there's talk of, um, I'm, I'm torn about that. I can see a lot of reasons why it could be a good thing. But on the downside, you're breaking away from the mainstream again. Yes. You're going back to a proprietary system. It would break a lot of the things you can do now, such as emulating, um, you know, virtualizing other OSs really easily. Of course, there is the possibility that Apple are actually going to do what they've already done in a couple of their machines, which is start adding ARM, uh, you know, their own ARM chips uh, as co-processors. Mm. For example, the uh, the touch bar machines have uh, a chip. They have an ARM chip to run the to run the touch bar, which apparently contains, uh, in effect, a cut down iOS uh, in ROM in that chip to run the to run that touch bar. One of the other machines might be the Pro uh, contains a T1 chip uh, to handle. I forget exactly what it handles now. Uh, network communication. I mean, it's like the... Uh, oh, yeah, the, there's the chip, isn't there, when it goes into sleep mode or you've got the lid closed that does all the networky stuff so it continues to refresh. Yeah. I'll tell you what it does remind me of. It reminds me of going back to the Amiga days where they had, like, dedicated chips for... Uh, what was it? They had the Agnes and... I'm going to kick myself because I can't remember the other chip um, to do the graphics. And then they had the Motorola chip. Then you had the audio chip as well. And it seems that they're sort of slowly going back into that way. But um, have you heard about this new, and I should get this into the show notes, I apologise, uh, HP, I believe, have just released a risk-based laptop, which apparently yes. has 24-hour battery life. Yes. And I'm surprised that there's not more talk about it, because it seems to be all this focus on Apple, 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 and yet, you know, this little things come out from Microsoft, but... Uh, they're, what are they calling those? They're, they're calling those... As we all head towards DuckDuckGo, <laughs> HP, Risk, apparently. It, it's, they're calling them always... P, is it PA Risk? No, uh, no yeah. I, I was thinking they've given them a name, which is like... Uh, always connected devices or something. Oh, the PA eighty seven hundred. I, you can tell that none of us are just looking on the Google. Uh, I've I've only seen one sort of review of it, and I don't sort of know if that's because they don't want it to get out there too much, or cause I think it's going to be easier for Apple if they want to do something with risk because they haven't screwed it up before. They have screwed things up before, but not like what Microsoft did with the Surface um, RT. Yeah, that was a that was a bit of a you know, shoot yourself in the foot there. I, I think the problem with Windows RT was they didn't make it clear to everybody. It looked to the average consumer exactly the same as Windows, but it wasn't. Uh, this this um... well, yeah, they're still doing that now because if you buy was it Windows S, you can only run uh, apps from the Windows Store, uh, which is yes. uh, which wouldn't be too bad if they weren't all junk. Well, yeah, it's it's like you've either got things from Adobe, which are horrifically expensive, and then you've just got all this other stuff that goes. I am not touching that with a barge pole. And the same, to be fair, it's the same with Apple. But 
you notice it more on the Windows platform because there are a lack of there is a lack of quality apps on there. And if somebody out there uses Windows in the Windows Store and they've got some decent apps, get in touch with me because I'm still trying to find a use for my Surface Pro other than <laughs> OneNote. Simon, yeah. Mark, do you think that perhaps the announcement about the chip is to reinforce in hardware what Apple's long said in software, which is that it wants to marry iOS and macOS, which which to some extent I'm 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 I won't say horrified about, but I'm I'm nervous because I do like macOS, I do like desktops, I do like the mouse, I do like being able to hover. And the thought yeah. that they're going to lead us in a direction where everything's a, a hamburger menu and swiping does worry me a little bit. I, and per- I per- can, perhaps yeah. that's what they're trying to do, perhaps by saying we're going to introduce a chip of our own. They're either, worst case scenario, going to allow it to be easier to do that and to make both devices look, al- both operating systems environments look alike, more alike, or they're going to allow them to continue to diverge as personally I think they should do, given that the portable devices are Apple's better revenue stream and have been for some time. Well, on that, that's been the worry for, well, since the iPhone sort of came out and all the Mac OS's mm. got updated, wasn't it? So we mm. have seen some dumbification of apps like mm-hmm. i'm like iMovie um oh, mm. was it pages and numbers got a little bit of a drilling down and they removed loads of features they removed apple script but then it basically came back it's it's hard to say i mean it depends on what let me try and let me try and let me try and get a sentence out that'll be good <laughs> I think by having control of all the by of the hardware gives them what they want to do from day one. What has always amazed me about Apple is how quickly they came out the gate, made their own processors, and pretty much started from day one blowing away people like Qualcomm and Snap, you know, with the Snapdragon stuff. That's what I find amazing. You know, they're doing their own GPUs and CPUs for the iPhone, and yet it doesn't. You just sort of wish that they had the same dedication to putting things onto the Mac. It's like, why have we still got crummy graphics cards? Well, if you want a decent graphics card, you've got to buy the iMac Pro, which is going to be coming out in 2019. Although the 4K Macs uh, seem to be quite good. But then you think, well, 4K, that's now got an association with video editing and gaming. But yet the Mac still isn't quite there. So there's lots of low-hanging fruit they could go for to make people happy. But are they holding off on, like, let's say, giving us a decent graphics card because they have this long-term vision of what they want to do? Or is it just Tim Cook's Apple where he can bring out a new iPad, uh, was it a new iPad with pencil support for 329 and yet for only 70 pounds more you could buy two generations earlier the mac uh well not the mac mini the ipad mini Mm. i i I agree with you mark on the other hand in fairness to apple as we were saying earlier technology is changing at a rate that we can predict to be huge but where it's going it's almost impossible to say (laughs) yeah as you say that's a whole different story isn't it and, and how do they how do they predict how does tim cook and his senior management predict where their highest revenue stream and their greatest chance of a good solid customer loyalty is going to be in in 5 years time when it takes 6 years to develop a chip it's it must be very difficult i wouldn't like that job however well informed i thought i might be i wouldn't like the job of saying we're going to do this because we can see that in 3 years time everybody is going to be using x when you don't know what x is and yet you'll be required to deliver on x 
that's a very good point because obviously they keep releasing a new chip every year. Now, obviously, it's got to take more than a year to design and fab a chip. Mm-hmm. If not, they've got some pretty good engineers going there. So <laughs> it's sort of thing with the A10X and everything you see about it. And I, I was in the Apple Store last week and I got to use the new iPad Pro. And just using the pencil on that screen was like, that was really, really nice. But coming back to, I, I was, I've got completely off tangent there. But if, if this is what we've got now, and they've got stuff in the pipeline, if you were someone like, you know, Qualcomm, you've got to be worried. Or well, are they I, just. I, I guess, uh, but I think Qualcomm are doing the same, aren't they? They're working, I assume they're working on their chips, you know, however long ahead that it takes to do it, two years, three years, whatever. I mean, they're all in the same boat because they're all using, um, they're all using ARM licensed uh, bases. I think whether or not people like it or not, I think Apple has been responsible for dragging a lot of the tech forward. It's like what you said um, earlier on, Mark, about you know how things were all the same for a while, and then someone comes new and out the block, and people you know, follow in terms of technology. I mean, look at how many years we sort of put up with before. Well, even after the iPhone was released, like the same is sort of handsets with very small, very minor tweaks, and like now every year. You know, was spoilt for you know premium based headset, you know handsets. Mm. Do you get the impression from other people that talk on your podcast and people that you deal with on a day to day basis that there's a kind of um, innovation fatigue? That do you remember the period about three, four years ago when Apple said we're not, we're no longer going to re- release an OS, a Mac OS, every year. We're going to allow you two years just to take a breather, and that re- that happened for a, a short time, and now we're already talking about ten, fourteen. Do you get the impression that there is a sizable chunk of the Apple community, the consumers who say, just please stop the world. I want to get off, even if it's only for a year. Yes, there is, because um, Apple started this cycle, I guess, when they launched the iPhone of, of you know releasing a new OS every year. They're kind of in the, you know, between the devil and the deep blue sea, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. if they stop doing it, they'll be slammed for you know, mm. slowing down, lacking innovation, running out of steam, whatever. And yet at the same time, there is a large uh, proportion of the Mac user base who are saying, I don't need a complete new OS revision every every year. You know, if it takes 18 months so that the next one is right or, you know, doesn't have so many bugs in it or doesn't feel like a late beta and then it takes six months for it to get properly usable, then do it. Um, yes. Or, or um, one thing that obviously that Microsoft have done, you know, they said, that's it. There is no nothing more than Windows 10. Uh, and from here on in, it's just going to be constantly updated. Yes, because it's set that we're 1709, I think, is now for businesses. Then we've got 1803 coming up. And, but what I'm saying is they're not doing this yearly uh, Windows 11, Windows 12. Oh, no, 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 no. They're, it's they're basically just, all... They've just gone to a, a rolling update almost in a, you know, a, a, like a lot of uh, the Linux. And might I say, it's a very scummy rolling update because every time <laughs> they come out and you have to do a major fe- feature jump, which you have to now because I think the current business branch is two years. I might be wrong on that. You have to go in... Uh, as I've as I've been doing it work, you have to go and reinstall Windows, which is basically it is a brand new operating system to have to jump up from a feature level. 
but the amount of crap they shovel on you. And even if you've got Pro, Pro is not Pro anymore. Pro is basically Windows Home with networking. That is it. Because you can't turn off Candy Crush. You have to, um, let me think about that. No, you can't turn off Candy Crush in the group policy because it's for enterprise only. And the amount of stuff that's enterprise only. So uh, I'm trying not to let my blood boil about this. Because... <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. It's like I don't, when I buy an OS, I want to buy the OS. I don't want all of the other junk. It's why I'm a very smug Mac user, because I know out the box, if I wanted to, I could burn a, uh, a CD. I can view a PDF. And if I want to change my PDF program, I can do without Microsoft Edge going, oh, I've noticed there's a problem. Let me just change it back to Edge, because honestly, Edge is brilliant apart from it's not. It's a major memory hole. It's the <laughs> fact that they keep installing things. They keep putting suggestions for apps everywhere. And this is, <laughs> and I get, the, I get that it's a subscription model. I really do, but it's sort of like they're panicking and they've got to keep their revenue income streams up by going down the scummiest route of putting Candy Crush onto things. Well, you do know that, um, that Windows has now been moved to the legacy division by Microsoft. I I knew they were working on a well. This is what they've been threatening for years, isn't it? They're working on a cloud um, operating system. Well, I mean, the whole point is really less to do with that. Although I guess that's part of it. But what they're saying is Windows as an OS is no longer. I mean, for years, Windows OS and Microsoft Office have been what has driven their re- revenue, mm. and now they're driving their revenue with services and azure and office 365 and things like that and windows itself has been moved to the legacy division for what that's worth anyway i'll tell you what um there's no john nemo this week uh he's having a rest because apparently he's got a truckload of stuff coming for next week so he's taking a break but uh why don't we take a five minute break boys and uh, get a fresh cup of tea uh, and then when we come back we can talk to mark about his music software right so we'll be right back in well for you a few seconds but for us probably about five minutes
Ah, we're back. Although, why am I saying that? Because I would have just put the edit point in so nobody would know. But almost a disaster there, chaps. I realised I only had one tea bag left, but then I realised I'm a loose-leaf tea man, so all was good in the world. Now, Mark, other than coming on to podcasts, you've done quite a lot of journalism, and most recently you've sort of you've thrown your hat into the ring of our, well, of our network, of MyMac. So what's been some of the stuff that you've been reviewing recently on uh, MyMac.com? First of all, what an amazing community, what a friendly community, what a supportive community. John Nemo is just fantastic. And I couldn't believe my luck. As you say, I had done reviews and writing for various of the other um, Think Secret, Mac NN. But when I landed with Mac, my Mac, everybody just did so much to make me feel what I what I was suggesting doing would be would be valued and the first few pieces that I wrote I think concerned um were, were database um particularly FileMaker but then with my interest in music which began as a listener from a very early age bef- before I was born almost <laughs> I've been a fanatic for classical music I suggested to John that I should review the then leading uh, notation software, Sibelius, which I know you've mentioned on the podcast before. And that was slowly being developed. I think I first looked at version six, seven came out a a year or so later, and eight was released. I I can't remember exactly when, but within the last couple of years. And in fact, only the other day, Avid, who owns Sibelius, announced that the name is changing to Avid Ultimate with a pipe between the two. And I don't think anybody, well, certainly I'm not clear exactly what the implications for that are, whether it's to be the last version or it is the last word. I don't know. Um, Back in 2013, while I was working on those reviews, I became aware of a move on Avid's part to downsize their operations in London and move their programming team to the Ukraine. There's a lot of opposition to that, a lot of misgivings about uh, Avid strategy. Sibelius is still going, it's still going strong, it still has a strong following. But what appeared like uh, a a possible near disaster to many people in the scoring, the music notation community, actually turned out to be a huge advantage because the team that was basically fired, I think all but three lost their jobs with Avid, approached Steinberg, the German uh, audio music specialist, or were approached by Steinberg under the leadership of Daniel Spreadbury, who was the project manager at Avid for Sibelius and is now the project manager at Dorico. And from what all of us can see, never sleeps. Has no, he does have children. He does have, a, uh, does have a, a singing. He sings on every Wednesday night, I think it is, in East Anglia, not far from you, Simon Ely. And he has led Dorico, he and his very talented group of people, from being a bit of an unknown, a bit of a question mark, because writing a hugely complex piece of software like a, no- a notation piece of notation software from scratch is no small feat. It, it must be one of the most complicated pieces of software to write. And that team, with the support of Steinberg and Daniel's vision, is phenomenal. In my mind, there's no doubt that Dorico is the future for reasons that we can perhaps come to in a minute. It has a very enthusiastic following, many of them refugees from Sibelius and Finale, although there are still people who will use Sibelius for things that Dorico is still developing. Dorico at the moment is on version 1.1.10. Build 139 is important if you're considering getting hold of Dorico because there was a, a bug in the previous version, which they corrected in I think about 36 hours it was discovered and a new version came out almost immediately as an indication of the dedication of the Dorico people. 
And it takes a different approach. I, I've reviewed Dorico for my Mac and was very impressed. I've also reviewed some of the, they call them VIs, virtual instruments, which allow you to use sampled sounds of professional musicians with all the notes or all the notes that can be expected within any one instrument's range, all the articulations, which means things like pizzicato and arco, which is bowing in the case of stringed instruments or mutes in the case of brass. And in an amazingly short time, if I'm getting my dates right, under five years, they've produced what most people now would claim is the market leader. It is comparably priced to Sibelius and Finale, although there are uh, crossover, um, cross-purchase, whatever they're called, uh, ways of, ways yeah, of buying. Cross-grades. Cross cross-grades, thank you. Cross-grades, which are a lot, a lot cheaper. And to put it simply, Sibelius and Finale, again, interesting that we were, we were talking about what, what the way things were 20, 30, even 40 years ago, heaven help us. Uh, music software until Dorico was very much written by computer scientists for musicians, albeit computer scientists who know a lot about music. Dorico is written that way in that there is clearly a very robust set of coding underneath the layer which musicians interact with, which is written primarily, exclusively, principally, chiefly, however you want to describe it, for musicians. So, for example, when you open up a Dorico score, you don't have to first indicate the time signature, 3444. Four, four. You don't have to say how many bars you want. You can simply start entering music in a very musicianly way. You use it on a, on a conventional octave. There are eight keys, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Actually, that's seven, but an octave has the A repeating itself. And you use the A, B, C, D, E, F, G keys on the keyboard to, as one of the several ways in which you can enter note values, pitches. And there are probably dozens and dozens of examples of how easy the Steinberg team with Daniel Spreadbury and the Dorico programmers have made entry of music. How, for example, you can move notes to the left or right in order to change their the accent in any given bar, things which neither Finale nor Sibelius can do, the way in which you can concentrate on making minute changes to the actual score, the, the sheet music which musicians will read and play or sing from, in a separate mode, which is akin to a desktop publishing software. Dorico has a setup mode, it has a write mode, play mode, an engrave mode, and then a print mode. And again, other programs tend to combine those sets of functionalities in a way that if you're ultra familiar and you're constantly hopping between them may not be confusing. But to a musician who just wants to set up their instrumentation, string quartet, pianist and singer, uh, brass quintet, whatever it is, forget about that. Don't worry about the way those instruments will perform. Go on to write and then enter the notes exactly as a professional score would seem when you buy it as sheet music in a shop or go, go along to an orchestral rehearsal and you play from it. That in itself is a very convincing model. It's, it separates the tasks out. It makes it easy to understand where you, where you are, why you're there, what you're expected to do, what you can do, and what would otherwise get in your way. Having said all that, the number of options which software as complex as this will need, and I sometimes think it must be like Photoshop, where you've got not only got a family of um, vector, bitmap, 
video and, and a variety of forms of graphics. You've also got the ability to control alpha channels and masks and uh, dodge and burn and all those things. I'm not a graphics person. Uh, it's just so complicated that to, to give the user access to the menus requires a huge amount of mature and intelligent thinking about the user into experience and the interface. And again, I think Daniel and Dorico and the Steinberg team have done an amazing job. You find that when you need something, it's just there. When you have to hunt for it, it's because you only use it but once a week. And I won't go into all the details of how the screen is laid out, but when I first started to use Dorico, which was for a MyMac review for John, I, I suppose two or three years ago, the product's been available now for just under two years. I was astonished at how logical and well laid out and well thought out the screen and the window in which you work. It's a single window, although there are preferences and windows that will appear over the main window, but they never interfere. How well thought out that was and how conducive it was to writing music. There's a very active forum. And you, you're frequently seeing people saying, I've switched to Dorico and I've halved the time it takes me to uh, produce a piece of music which is going to be readable by musicians and is going to be um, easily readable. I had a, a small concert of mine about a month ago, of pieces of music that I'd written, and I, I was unaware that the musicians that were playing it weren't, they were, they were either Sibelius users or Finale users. One or two of them said to me afterwards, what, what was this all about? Why was, why was it so easy? Why was the spacing as, uh, as, as broad as it was? Why were the notes so clear? Why were the proportions between the stems and the, and the, and the notes so accurate? It just seemed so right. Just like those occasions when you ask someone who's read an article, what font was it? And they say, I didn't notice. That's the, the biggest compliment you can pay a designer. So as you can tell, I'm very enthusiastic about Dorico. And again, look, referring back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about having to anticipate what chips will be required to do before you can even build them. And yet you have to build them before you know that. There's something about the approach that the designers and project product managers are taking with Dorico, this exciting piece of software that does in many ways future-proof it. And I think, I think it has to be said that it is the software of the future for people using notation software. It isn't a sequencer. It isn't a door, a digital audio workstation, although it does have, in play mode, it does have a piano roll feature, which allows you to look at, uh, to, 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 to zoom in on the uh, precise lengths um, and durations of notes. But most people will use it in the way that they use Sibelius and in the way in which they used uh, manuscript paper before that, except it is so much quicker. And I do have a personal connection with Sibelius in that, again, talking about the old Acorn days, uh, I don't know whether you remember, Simon and Mark, the old Acorn exhibitions in the horticultural halls in London. Do you remember those? No, I can't say that no. I do. The, it, was, it was somewhere on something like Horse Ferry Road or somewhere, somewhere down in, in SE1 before or at the same time as Bet started. And I remember seeing Ben Finn and his brother Jonathan Finn demonstrating Sibelius on an acorn and thinking, goodness, I wish I could, I couldn't afford that. I wish I could, uh, I wish I could use something like that. And then life intervened and I became a teacher and did all sorts of other things. But then to go back to Sibelius, which I reviewed for my Mac, see that it had traveled as far as it had. And yet there was another generation waiting in the wings, which is this Dorico program I've been talking about. It was very interesting because it, there's continuity in that musicians are still writing music in the way they were writing music in the 80, 1980s. Uh, but their ability to do so and the, the helping hand that a really sophisticated piece of software can, can give them 
does we are dealing with a completely new new paradigm now and it's very exciting it doesn't show by your <laughs> by, by your somewhat very up description it's um, I, I will say that i have no idea about notation or anything like that but it's the the one thing that interests me most about this is can you just give us a little bit more of a rundown about when it says dtp style creation what does that actually mean paint a picture for someone like me who I know you've got the lines going across the paper and you've got the scales and stuff like that, but what does it mean when it's like when it says DTP style Mark, creation? Yes, good question. What it means is that one of the modes that Dorico operates in is engrave mode, which means you use the rules of, as you say, the the, the ledger lines and the staves going horizontally, and those are the those represent the pitch levels, and then the bars, or in American, the measures, which represent the um, accents and the time component. So you have notes proceeding one after the other, regardless of pitch in a 4-4. There will be four quarter notes or crotchets in a bar. I know what that bit means because that's what status quo play. Okay, as does, does do most people. Though that is, that is, if you like, note entry. But if you decide that you want to, for example, indicate that there should be a pedal uh, sustained, soft, loud on the piano, or you want to increase the volume, so you go from pianissimo to fortissimo, and you use something called a hairpin to suggest that the, the, incre the, in the increase is gradual, those then become marks which the musician needs other than notes. And Dorico, like every other piece of software, has a default position for those notation for that for those aspects of notation. But in engrave mode, you can fine tweak them. You can add text frames so that you could put in the name of the composer, the composer's favorite, since we're talking about T, their favorite loose leaf T, if you wanted to, their year of birth, the date of composition. You could have lyrics if you had uh, song. Uh, words added as text but you might find that the descenders the p's the g's the y's were too close to the high notes now dorico makes a very good attempt at moving them but because you've got a desktop publishing model you can actually say well in order to fit everything on this page i'm actually going to think try to override the dorico defaults I'm going to decrease the margins from whatever the default is to a quarter because this is an informal concert I'm having this music engraved for and I know the musicians won't object to that. And that will allow me, instead of it running over the page so that I've got 17 bars and the 6th through the 11th are on one page and the 12th to the 17th are on another, I can either cram it all onto two pages or politely, I can carefully put it on two pages by shrinking, by moving, by shrinking the spaces between text frames and those uh, marks which enhance performance such as dynamics, fortissimo, pianissimo, the, the degree of the velocity, the degree of um, the loud, loudness. So you actually, Dorico will allow you, although it comes up with an extremely good default, to move objects pertaining to the score around on the page. You might start off with a 36-point title, which is all very well, but if it's a long title, then it might be more appropriate to shrink that down to 24-point or even 18-point, or even to dispense with it altogether if it's an informal rehearsal. And in that sense, Dorico is giving you infinite control in the way that musicians like to have through moving the elements of the score, which is a lot more than just those notes on the staves. So if for me, I mean, obviously, desktop publishing is, is my large part of my career. Mm -hmm. um, 
So what you're saying is in the same way as if I have a page of text and it's two lines too long, I yeah. can I can I have the controls in the typography to say, well, we'll we'll track that back by, you know, one M per thousand. And exactly. and that will then bring me back, you know, to fit on the page. Or I can say oh, I'll take a, a, a tenth of a point out of the out of the uh, horizontal leading, the vertical leading. Exactly, what, Simon. Yes, well, what exactly. you're saying is if, if if a song, if Dorico's default was to say, right, you've got X number of, um, you know, ledgers per page and your song is one one set, you know, one line too long, as it were, you can say, well, I can, I can just, in this engrave mode, I can change that and I can make it all fit onto one page. That's, that's exactly right, Simon. Yes, that is, that is probably the, uh, probably one thing which a lot of people will want to do. But bear in mind, unlike a DT, unlike text, where you basically only have the letters of the alphabet with underline, bold, italic, um, accents, uh, small caps, um, drop caps, and yeah. so on. When you've got essentially a recipe for an extraordinarily complex set of sounds, so that, for example, you have got, let's go back to this example of what they call a hairpin. They call it a hairpin because it's like a, 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 an elongated chevron where your quietest note is at the left-hand side, usually with something beginning with P, the Latin, the, the Italian for quiet piano so it's either piano pian piano pian pianissimo and then the hairpin expands like a bird's beak until it's uh, at an angle of probably something yeah. like 20 degrees and then at the right hand side is fortissimo if you split that when you're printing over from one ledger from one uh, stave to the other you've got to keep the degree to which that bird's beak has slowly opened as the music gets louder in mind so that when you begin to look at the beginning the left hand side of the next line down or at worst in worst case still perhaps the, yeah, uh, the, the new page Dorico has to, or any notation software has to do all that for you and it would do it for example in the case of something called a slur which is where you notes will you don't take your string off the violin for example they're not two separate notes the notes join together they're not the same note that's a tie these are slurs where there there is a a, a a continuous movement from one note to the other it's generally makes classical music in, in many circumstances sound more natural those two have to be there must be some algorithm underneath the hood which which musicians do not have to worry about it's all done for them by dorico which takes care of all that in terms of the appearance and the print and there are there are probably i wouldn't like to hazard a guess but there are probably literally dozens if not hundreds of requirements about that appearance of software of of uh, musical notation which dorico takes care of and the great selling point for dorico over the other the older because after all uh finale and sibelius were both developed 25 years ago i mean in the in the early 90s if not earlier I was going to say, I remember uh, a, a guy who used to uh, write for a, uh, a role-playing game magazine slash, well, fanzine really, that we, we produced. Uh, and I remember him talking about uh, Sibelius because he was at u university and he was debating at the time whether he should go with Cubase or Sibelius. And that would be in the late 80s. Yes, for sure. For sure. So, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, They've been around a long time, and they are still very good programs. They still do the the bulk of what they want to do. 
but they are written inevitably as by computer scientists. They're written as code which puts the how can I put this? It 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 makes it easier for the computer to do something. The algorithms are computer based rather than music based. And when you when you when you compare the two and you start to use Dorico, you very quickly see that it, the computer's actually doing perhaps five times as much work as you are. Whereas in the older programs, necessarily, you are having to say, well, how would I make the computer do this, given that I want to, for example, in, invert a chord? Yeah. Uh, the, other, the other thing that comes to mind to me um, is, is that when you talk about programs like Sibelius or Cubase, which are, you know, their roots go back to yes. the late 80s you can run into this thing of, you know, what they call the legacy code and the spaghetti yes, yes. That's, that's built up. And they're built originally uh, with the limitations of the hardware of the time. Definitely. And Definitely. although they've, you know, added on and built on and, and added more and more sophistication over time, there comes a point where the only way to add newer, more modern features or to take full advantage of new hardware abilities like you're talking about these algorithms that will help you know keep your um uh, you know keep your graphics as it were in yes. the correct place yes it is to tear it all down and start again yes you're right you're dead right and as a coder i know how difficult it is to do that and it, it, it's it's amazing when you there's a very active dorico forum there, the, all the steinberg forums uh, seem to be very active and just one small point simon cubase is not a notation software it's a sequencer oh, but it's the same it's the same family and your point is still is still a good one the way in which the steinberg team is appears to be even though some of them are in london and some of them are in uh, in germany appears to be on the forums helping people out 24 hours a day there must be a quiet point probably uh in the middle of the night when there aren't people jumping in to help but you do get a, 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 a probably a um an, an unintended insight into just how committed the team are to maintaining that code and to keeping it to wrangle it as they say in the united states to keep it to keep keep it in check so that you don't get either the leg you don't get too carried away by the legacy aspect of it which is probably almost inevitable as things change and you keep track of bugs they, they must have a superb and, and sophisticated and very flexible bug tracking system because it, it's very rare that something comes up and is a, a showstopper and isn't uh, isn't dealt with very quickly and that as you imply simon that must come from an understanding that you're working with fresh code which they are and because several of the people have been through this before when the time comes for dorico to be a, a totally mature piece of software that's been around for 10 years to make certain that they don't run into that same uh, pitfall again and i i have every confidence that that will happen i have every confidence that they will be able to keep the code clean in in in, in and avoid the, the things that you were just talking about i just have an instinct for that i, I, I other than the, the, the people involved and the, the the dedication of the people involved it, it just seems that based on everything that the program has done up to now that's what will happen and that's going to be to the advantage of musicians all over the world yeah very much so i think that's a, you know excellent one final question then is obviously what rating did it get on my mark i'm guessing a six or a seven <laughs> <laughs> do you know i can't remember i'll have to look it up um I, at the time, if I'm honest, my belief is at the time that um, it was still in development. Uh, 
and it didn't get 10. Let's have a look. February the 3rd, 2017, probably nine, um, nine out of 10. And in comparisons of cost to other bits of software, how does that, how does it rank like that? Is it, is it about the same cost as its competitors? Or? It's the same. It's very much so. Yes, Mark. It's the same cost as, as, as the competitors. And with the cross grade, it's cheaper than if you own, if you own one of them, the two major competitors. At the time I wrote that review, there were still things which it could not do, which competitors could. There were still aspects of it that were being developed. But I think I, I hope I tried to articulate in that review just how much, as we've kind of hinted, the team was had been assembled carefully, meticulously based on their experience and their skills. They kind of had a sense that they were even, I would even go so far as to say future proofing, at least for a generation, notation software. And so you you were really assessing their faith and their ability to deliver. And, and perhaps to some extent in February 2017, which is over a year ago, taking something, I was taking something of a risk because there was criticism at the time. But I have absolutely no doubt now when you bear in mind what's happened in the intervening year, that that faith in their ability to understand what was needed and to deliver in a musicianly way rather than a, a computer way was was well placed because it, it's just gone from strength to strength. And I would say that were I to review an, a future version and version two will be coming out this possibly this year, if not early next year, it'd be very hard to imagine uh, not awarding it 10 out of 10 because it's it's just going from strength to strength. I've got a bit, I've got some resonance with what you said that some of the competitors have a feel that they're they're engineered bits of software. They're, then obviously some of them are going to have a musical background. Uh, whereas this comes across as like, ah, oh, right, we actually know and understand, and that's what we're creating for. Because in one exactly in um in one software software development company I worked for, which made some accounting software, it was all engineers and techies. Yes, and. So I tried to explain to them that it was literally, this is how bad it, this bit of software was, high merit software. There was one screen where you would have a block that was grayed out. Now, we all know, industry standard, if something is grayed out, you don't type into it. That's a, a fairly safe assumption, I, I, I take it? Well, I'd pretty much say that that's, uh, that's, <laughs> industry, that's the industry, uh, you know, zeitgeist, isn't it? The yep. Stopped, oh, yeah. Uh, that we've we've all across all platforms now any platform it's become part of how we understand computers work is if something's grayed out it's don't, not a don't try and do anything with it then on the very very next screen this gray box is now suddenly the box you have to type into first mm. it's like <laughs> it's page one don't type in this box but page two you have to type into this box so i completely get where you're coming from that you know an engineer is a good engineer and doesn't necessarily make him um it's like an accountant accountants no figures but they're not necessarily the people that you want to you know that would run a business mark your your point about accountancy that, that's very helpful to me thank you that i think that's an even better example than um than than the photoshop one because accountants notoriously at the risk of generalizing are aware of how figures should be made to work when they need to produce a budget but the average user probably isn't and so the equivalent would be i think for an for an for an a, a software engineer to write an accounting program where you couldn't for example i just take two examples that spring to mind you couldn't sort the dates on which the checks were presented to the bank as opposed to the dates when you entered your checks and you couldn't for example change the category 
So you have uh, vehicle, vehicle fuel, vehicle insurance, vehicle repair, and you want you 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 go to the garage and you buy both fuel and have it repaired, and you can't reflect that in the accounting system because the end software engineer has written it as a non-accountant, and that is exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about with Dorico. That it's a musician who's told the coders, no, that won't work. You don't have to ask them to scratch their heads and not write in that grey box. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, I've seen it so many, so yes. many times, you know, it's in, in, in the engineer head. It's like, well, yeah, that works. I'm going, yes. have you actually spoken? And this is I'm coming back full circle to what we started talking about, about web design and users. You go, have you actually asked users what they think of this software? And they go, no, we don't have to because we're one of the biggest accountancy mm-hmm. programs here. So <laughs> they will do what we say. Do, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember the exact address, but there used to be uh, a website called uh, something like the worst user interface of the week. Mm. And they would, they would put up these horrific pieces of uh, software, you know, interfaces that they'd come across or people had sent in. And, and they would be things with hundreds of tabs and boxes and all sorts all over them. It was, it was like, yes, we name and shame the worst <laughs> user interfaces out there. But yeah. uh, they would, yes. And uh, again, those were nearly always, and I know we're, we're ragging on engineers here and that's, that's not necessarily <laughs> fair. Oh no, there are some good engineers. Um, just to round off my point with, uh, with this company. So I bumped into one of the lead engineers on the site and basically long story short, one of the big managers left because um, he couldn't get anything done because the teams are all arguing and stuff like that. And this engineer said to me, we were given a brief of this is what I want to happen, uh, make it happen. And then he was complaining about the fact that there was no um, leadership. There was no sort of, they didn't tell him what they, um, you know, there was no, how do I put this? He put it in a way of, he was basically giving a brief saying, I want this to happen, make it happen. And then this engineer was complaining because there was no leadership and he wasn't being told what to do. And I went, are you crazy? You had the opportunity of a lifetime for an end for a boss to say, I want this to happen, make it happen. And you have it in your whinging about the fact that there was no leadership well, and they trusted you to do it. Yeah, but Mark, if you look at that from the other side, imagine in, in the, um, in your example of an accountancy piece of software, if somebody says to this guy, go away and write me an accountancy package, by no leadership, does he really mean no feedback, no assistance? If he's not an accountant and knows nothing about how accountancy software should be put together, then he's got no leadership. Somebody has to you know get well, him an yeah, accountant. I, I, I see that but as he works for an accountancy company and he's one of their lead developers and he knows ah, all the developers and stuff like that then then in that case he should be asking an accountant to come in and oversee what he's doing but yeah, but then mm. you but then you end up in fact mark you can chip in on this but then you get the client saying well i want this and i want this and we come back again to the circle of they only ask for what they know that they can have not what's mm. possible it's like mm. these um these apps now would any accountant um say to you you know what i want a an ios app that does my accounts and i want it to be able to ocr a receipt email uh set, pop up a message when it's done and then i can assign that to a category well why not why would they not ask for that because they don't know they can have it well mm. 
Oh, but then, 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 many years ago, many, many years ago, obviously, you know, I work in graphic design and, uh, you know, 20 odd years ago when the software we used was not as powerful and expansive as it is now. My father, who was obviously the lead designer, uh, would sometimes say to me and my brother, well, I want I want to do this. And it would be, you know, we'd have to scratch our heads and say, but the software doesn't allow you to do that. And his answer would usually be, go away and figure out how to do it, right? Even if that piece of software doesn't do it, figure out a way to make it happen. Because his answer was, never let the technology compromise your artistic Mm. integrity. Mm. And that is, you can't go, but it can't be done. It's like, go away and find out how to make it be done. Mark, round us up on here. What's your take on this? You've been you've been sat there listening. What's your take on this? On what we've been talking about with user role, role of users, the the role of engineers and users. You know, should engineers? Um, how much when you're? Well, I'll tell. You, let me rephrase the question. When you're designing a project, how much do you listen to a user, and how much is absolutely just paying lip service and going? No, mm-hmm, no, you're mm-hmm, right. I mm-hmm. I know what you're asking. Yes, before I answer that, um, I have like probably the two of you have searched in vain for years for a really good accounting package for the Mac, and about two years ago. I came across something called C Finance, which is uh, S E E Finance. It's not one of the most well-known, like Money Dance, Quick, and iBank. I've used them all, and I can honestly say I have found it to be superb. Very well supported. It's about it's either thirty nine dollars or fifty nine dollars. Works really well. Does everything I want under constant development, as robust as they come. It's well worth a look if 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 you are interested in very flexible uh, financial um, software. I have two questions about this. Number one, does it have multi user support? That I don't know because I don't need it. It may not do. You'd have to look it up and see. And number two, as it's an American website, can you use it in pounds? Yes. And, and furthermore, as an example of how well it's written, which is then going to lead me to that to the, the question you just asked, the developer has recognised that people like me, I'm not special about me, but we'll have we'll have accounts in multiple in more than one country, and it will convert on the fly according to the day's exchange rate all my savings in the UK into an amount that corresponds to dollars when it calculates my net worth. It, it's very it does that very well. I I think you I think we all three of us would agree that if you don't listen to your customers or your uh, musicians or your um, uncle or aunt who want to enter their checkbook, you're going to run into trouble sooner or later. And I, I think there are probably two ways to do that. One is a little bit more than lip service by saying, oh, well, I suppose we better have some UI. I suppose we better have some feedback. I suppose we better have a, um, a, a panel and see what they think. Or they're saying at the beginning, the philosophy of this project is one where we don't expect the user to do anything because our software makes it difficult for them. We, we, we start out by saying, uh, this has to be done from a user's perspective. There's a there's a trend in the US that's I don't know how long it, uh, it it's been in place. We've we used it when I was when I was at work called design thinking, and it's not I don't think that's a very descriptive name necessarily, but it talks about when you're doing training for design thinking, you go out into the into the um, the community. In our case, the, the visitors to the museum I worked in, and you ask them questions without expecting any answer at all. For example, what does simple example might be? What does flashing 
red mean to you? And if you if you expect everyone to say danger or warning, and only three of them do, then you go back and you think again, and you that become that that's that process of iteratively asking people what they think this means, why that works. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff, but it doesn't happen often enough. If you build that into your uh, ethos in the course of designing a website or building software or or presenting engraving software for the for a real musician, just as much as you build into your approach the idea of not working on Sundays, <laughs> then <laughs> you're, you're going to succeed. And if you leave it out and pay lip service to it, you're not. And I think, excuse me, Apple's been very good at doing that over the years. And the times when it fails is when it when it forgets that. And I can I, I'm sure we can all think of examples of times when yeah, I, I, enough, I, enough I, I'm very much with that. And I think also there's a, there's been a change over time because, yeah, if you think back to System 6 and System 7, there would be applications which might be very capable of doing what they were designed to do, but had very much been put together, as we're saying, by, by computer guys. And obviously, you know, it was new then. This was all new. So, you know, don't I'm not knocking it in that sense. But over time, these companies have come to learn that you can't just put something together because it does what you want it to do. Yeah. You also have to get yeah. proper feedback from your users about how they want to do it. And and of course that's that's informed and grown over time, and that's why you know, we look at software now and be it on Windows or uh, the Mac or, or Linux, and it is usually you know so much slicker than the, than the software of twenty years ago. Yes, because it's all it's all just grown. You know, I mean, this is an incredibly new industry, really. You know what we've just done on this podcast? We've actually we've actually had a reason, debate, and discussion that's almost intelligent and uh, noteworthy. Oh, See, we're you guests, Yeah, you get these guests we're coming ruined. on here, raising the target levels of us. Uh, you, oh, our reputation is ruined. That's all right. We'll be back to normal next week. Oh, well, I, may I say, Mark and Simon, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't know re- exactly what to expect, and I, I appreciate how welcome oh, you've well, made join, me Oh, join the club. It's like every time I press record, it's like, all right, Simon's done some notes. We may use them. Uh, well, thank you, Simon, for doing the notes, but I don't think we've touched on any. I wanted to talk about the new iPad, um, which is basically – I'll save that for next week because th- we've gone on for an hour and a half. Right, so, Mark, this is the point of the show where you can shield yourself – Put the plugs out there. Go for it. How do people get a hold of you? What's your website? Are you on the social medias, the Twitters? Now is the time to give yourself a big old hearty plug. Thank you. I don't use social media at all, believe it or not. I think I'm just too old. Um, the simplest way of getting... If, if I give you a, um, an email address, that I, I, avoiding spam, how do we do that? I mean, the email address that Simon and I have been using to correspond is a good way. My website is www.markworks.com, M-A-R-K-W-O-R-K-S.com. There is a contact form there, of course. But publishing email addresses I don't want to do for obvious reasons. How do people generally do it? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, if they want to get in contact with you, they can get in contact with us via the Twitter yeah. at Essential oh. Apple, or they can email us, or they can drop into our Slack room. And speaking of which, Simon's got a little bit of news about our Slack rooms. He did a bit of an experiment this week. 
You can now join the Slack room simply by following our link. Yes, you can. Which is, yes, you no longer have to get a personalised invitation. I, I did mention this last week when I was on with Suffolk Pete, but uh, Slack have now allowed the use of a link. So you can uh, join the Slack room simply by going to bit.ly slash EAP underscore Slack. Awesome, awesome. Uh, and if Dorico are listening, and I think we will, uh, we'll try and get in contact with them to send them uh, how Mark has been able to wax lyrical. By the way, we have no association with them. I don't know if Mark does no, or anything. No, like that. none whatsoever. No, and I should have said that at the beginning. I'm very enthusiastic, purely because I'm enthusiastic. I don't own shares in Steinberg. I've been around a long time. I'm reasonably well known by some of the people there but i have no uh, no financial or business well, extra kind whatsoever. No, and, and that's why it's been enjoyable listening to because I, I will admit i didn't quite get all the aspects of it because music is not in my nature i, I listen to podcasts as well i don't know why um let's try that again um i didn't understand all of it but it's just fascinating to listen to someone and that's what i like getting people on the show uh, to talk about is they can pick a subject and they can wax lyrically about it and just enjoy themselves talking about it uh so we will send a copy of this to dorico and hopefully uh they can sort you out with at least a little bit of prom- uh, promo or something for you uh right simon if they want to get in contact with you how can they do so good sir uh right well just before i do that there is a worth the chirp uh which mac jim sent to me and this features uh nord vpn ah, yes i've used them yep favorites uh there is a special offer for viewers of a particular youtube channel and the link is in the show notes uh and if you follow that there is a very generous 77 percent discount if you take a three-year subscription and that will give you six devices for three years at 99 dollars which works out at $2.75 a month, which is an outstandingly good offer. Um, And if I wasn't already signed up to the Proton VPN, I'd be very tempted. But uh, I'm I'm not sure how long this deal is available for. So uh, if you're interested, look at the show notes, follow, look at the YouTube channel or follow the link and pick up NordVPN uh, for $99 for three years. Uh, Having said that, now, if you wish to get hold of me, I am on the Twitter as at Serenak, and that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. Awesome stuff. Thank you very much. And, of course, if you want to get hold of me, it's at Essential Apple on the Twitter, or it's at Ocean Speed if you want to see what shenanigans I've been up to as my cycling season starts. And hopefully this time I won't pour myself a cropper like I did last week, so I had to take two weeks off. And, of course, you can see all of these shows and previous shows and more shows to come and other content type stuff over on essentialapple.com and remember we are in the slack channels and as i haven't done it for a few weeks i just also want to say a huge 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 thank you to all of you out there who've used our amazon affiliate link uh, all the all the little cards that we get to say we've made a couple of dollars yeah, every couple of months all goes in to the hosting to the equipment we're going to get simon a microphone stand and a decent set of headphones so he's not bleeding through uh, next week uh, and especially You're bleeding through back here mate so well i'll tell you what, Mark, is anyone bleeding through your end? Not at the moment. Oh. I'm I'm staunching it all. <laughs> I, uh, I think we're going to have to do some testing with our Audio Hijack Pro setup. And of course, oh, I'd just like to send out a big heartfelt thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Uh, without you, it would be a lot harder to do this show. So big, huge, huge thank you. And on that note, I need to go and cook a roast chicken because I'm blinking hungry. So we'll see you next week. Cheerio, everyone. Cheerio. Bye-bye and thank you.
We are part of the MyMac.com podcasting network, where you can find such excellent shows as Guy and Gaz on the MyMac show, Tim and David on the Tech Fan show, The Three Geeky Ladies, The Geekiest Show Ever, uh, The Excellent Bart Bouchotts with his Let's Talk, The Club Nintendo, and many, many more. Hi, I'm Bart Bouchotts, host of the Let's Talk Apple podcast. Every month I gather together a panel of Apple followers and we digest the month's Apple news. Our aim is to step back and take a 40,000 foot view of all things Apple. We're the perfect complement to the many great daily news shows out there. Listen and subscribe at www.letstalk.ie Essential Apple Podcast. Goodbye and thank you for listening.